0: Turn with me, please, to Genesis 1, Genesis 1. It's a privilege to be with you. I did speak once before in Birmingham at this conference and once in Tom Askell's church. Tom's a very dear friend. And uh, I didn't realize how large this conference has become in the last few years, so I'm thrilled with that and uh, thrilled to be here again. I've been asked to speak three times. We're going to look at the image of God. It's going to be a little heavy on the doctrine. You pastors should be able to handle it easily. I'll try to pepper it with some examples for you children as well. And then later on, we're going to look at justified man and glorified man, which will be, um, I hope, uh, very exciting topics for you to listen to and, to and to grow from and to think about our future in glory with Christ forever. Genesis 1:26 through 28. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we approach this vast subject of the image of God, we pray that we would have insight, clarity, and grasp a little bit better than we ever have before over the vastness of this beautiful doctrine that identifies, as we just heard, what is man. I pray too, Lord, that we would realize as image bearers that we owe an account to Thee of everything, all that we do with our eyes, with our hands, with our feet, but above all, with our never-dying soul. Help us to live with the intentional consciousness every day that we are image bearers of the Most High God. And bless this address to that end, not only to pastors and their families, but even to very young children. Lord, let thy kingdom come, and let us counteract the antithesis in our society between the wicked and the righteous, and let us live for the glory of God by being image bearers of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well. In this address, this first address I'm giving you, I want to talk to you about the biblical foundations of our existence, specifically in this one narrow area that we are image bearers of our great and glorious Creator. This is a very rich doctrine, and to grasp it is essential to understanding the doctrine of God— the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of sin, salvation, and even, as we'll hear later, eschatology. Our creation in the image of God, which theologians call imago Dei, the image of God, distinguishes the excellence and superiority of the Christian worldview from every other worldview, every other ideology, On the scene today, knowing what the Bible teaches about the image of God and being able to defend it will equip us to hold our ground as believers as we earnestly contend in our modern day for the faith once delivered to the saints, because we're all aware, I trust, that this doctrine is being attacked, assaulted from every side. Psalm 11 says that the attacks of the wicked upon the Lord's people are such that they bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon their string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. And then the next verse says, but if the foundations be destroyed, and that's what this conference is all about, foundations conference, what can the righteous do? It's critical that we know the foundations of the image of God, so we know our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with society and humanity in general. You can't understand your family. You can't understand a school. You can't understand church. You can't understand evangelism without understanding imago Dei, the image of God. Now, ever since Darwinistic naturalism became the dogma of the schools. The masses had been indoctrinated with this notion that man is no more than some kind of sophisticated animal, as Tom so eloquently expressed it to us. And so as we stand on the precipice now, on the cusp of a global cultural revolution, where all that the Bible says about man is just cast into the trash can, where much of the political establishment around us is also radically anti-Christian, it's hard to predict how devastating the consequences of the loss of this doctrine, the image of God, will be. Without it, we have no basis for ethics. Without it, when the door is open for all kinds of other radical ideologies, we will ultimately rejects the very doctrine of the Creator Himself. And so the door has been opened, wide opened, for all kinds of radical ideologies on just about everything from social engineering, population control, eugenics, cloning, implantable technologies, transgenderism, and transhumanism, not to mention government overreach that refuses to respect the inalienable rights that our Creator has invested in us As his image bearers. So, our creation in God's image is the foundation of the very morality that defines us and dignifies us, and of the rights and freedoms that we are entitled to, and of our entire relationship to the God who made us for one purpose just one purpose to glorify Him. So this concept of the image of God is crucial to knowing our nature, our identity, our function in society, our relationship to God, our relationship to our fellow men and our relationship to creation itself. And so when Genesis: 127 takes these words, "God created man in his own image." to summarize the excellence of the human race and to distinguish us uniquely and sharply from the rest of creation as the apex of creation, we've got to sit up and listen and say, what do we mean by the image of God? Nothing can dignify us more than the bearing of the image of God. The value of all things lies in their manifestation of the glory of God, and God has chosen sovereignly to concentrate His revealed glory in the pinnacle of His creation, which is the human race. Herman Boving put it this way so well, the entire world is a revelation of God, a mirror of His attributes and perfections. Every creature in its own way and degree is the embodiment of a divine thought. But among the creatures, only man is the image of God, God's highest, richest revelation, and consequently the head and crown of the whole creation. So in this message, I want to trace the developing revelation of God's image through redemptive history from creation the new creation in Christ in perfect, everlasting glory. I'm going to do that around four simple thoughts. First, we're going to discuss the image of God as created in its pristine state. Second, as continuing in its fallen state. Third, as renewed in its redeemed state. And fourth, as completed in its glorified state. Created continuing, renewed, and completed. These four states of man were already expressly set forth by Augustine in his debates with Pelagius, and then Thomas Boston took that and developed it in his famous book that I recommend highly to you, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. So we're going to look at those four states reflective of the image of God And then I want to give you some practical, quick and practical conclusions. So, first, then, the created image of God. The created image of God is expressed in what I read to you from Genesis 1. And in these verses, the verb created appears three times to emphasize that man was the crown of creation. And the word image appears three times. And the word likeness appears once. Seven times we have words that highlight how central the divine image is to man's created identity and purpose in just two verses. So in what ways, what aspects of the created image of God are we talking about here? Well, let me say four things here. First of all, we are images of God's communicable, that is, able to be communicated attributes. We are images of God's communicable attributes. The term translated as image, perhaps you know, refers to an artistic depiction. And likeness refers to an appearance, a pattern, or a similarity. And so aside from references to the image of God in man, the two words appear together only once in Ezekiel 23, and apparently they're with the same meaning. And so in Genesis 1, these two terms are used almost interchangeably. Theologians have spilt pages of ink on trying to distinguish the two words, but the two terms appear to explain each other. God made man as an image like himself. That's it. The idea then is that the Lord designed human beings to be limited, visible, earthly creatures that resemble God for his glory. And so we expect the image of God then to be analogous to be inferior but analogous in a finite way to the power of God, the authority of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, and other communicable attributes that manifest his glory in this world. Johannes well, Saab the Dutch theologian, said the divine image consists in a faint resemblance to the communicable attributes of God. We have nothing of God to the extent that God has it of God. But by the image of God, you see, we we have an analogous portion that is inferior to God, and yet it is like God. So man, you and I, have a small sketch of God's attributes printed upon us. God does not say that he gave or imparted his full image to man, nor that he commissioned man to image him perfectly, as if we could do so, but rather that God made man in his image. So that is, as we were created, as we were created, aspects of God's nature and God's condition, or rather our nature and our condition reflect the divine nature, the divine actions of the Most High God. So we are personal beings. We are endowed with rationality, with spirituality, with personality, with morality, with volitional capacities to choose and make decisions, all of which are reflections of the attributes of God, all of which we have in degrees or altogether differently than animals have. And we're called to image God by patterning our conduct, our way of thinking, our way of speaking, our way of acting after God's will and communicating his word in this world to his glory. So the measure of our godliness or, God likeness is the degree to which we reflect the character of God in our habits, our virtues, our thoughts, our decisions, our actions. This is the way we are called to live intentionally every day. You ought to get up every morning and say, Lord, help me to be like thee today. Help me to be more and more and more reflecting the character of my God in his communicable attributes. Now, those attributes are reflected in Paul's epistles in many different ways. The two most famous verses are Ephesians 3, or rather Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, where it speaks of the image of God in our creation consisting of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And these three are reflective of the offices or should I say, the threefold office in which we were created. So we were to be prophets. We were to be prophets. We are to be prophets, reflecting God's knowledge. We are to therefore love the truth. We're to have a right knowledge of ourselves and of God and of our creation. We're to know the essence of things. And we did know that perfectly in paradise. That's why Adam could give every animal its real name. Because he was a prophet created with prophetic knowledge in the image of God. But we're also created in righteousness, in righteousness as God's priestly image bearer. We we were lovers of that which was right before we fell in Adam. We were totally righteous. We were estranged from all obstacles between God and ourselves. One Puritan put it this way, pre-fall, Our soul was a brook of crystal in which not a speck of dust could be found. And then we were created as kings in holiness. As God's royal image bearers, we lived out the three things pre-fall signified by holiness. Separation from sin, devotion to God, and being fully consecrated to Him, being whole, being sound, Being pure, subjecting our entire being and all things to the purpose and will of God. Loving him, consecrating all to him as the Holy One. And so, knowledge, righteousness, holiness. This is what our forefathers called the image of God in the narrow sense of the word. The essence, the bullseye. But then the image of God in the wider sense is things like Our rationality, having the ability to reason, to think abstractly, to deal with deeper meanings, to use language. Our spirituality, having a soul that enables us to spiritually worship and communicate with God, who is spirit. Our immortality, having a never dying soul, and after the resurrection, one day, a never dying body. Our conscience. Having a deep awareness of God, a moral sense of right and wrong, our erect body posture, most of the Reformers said. Standing and walking erect on two legs instead of lowered to four, reflecting the dignity of the human being as part of the image of God in the wider sense. And then there is the whole debate about the dominion over God's creation assigned after our creation. Was it part of our image of God, or was it somehow distinguishable? But certainly, being called to have dominion over all creation reflects the image of God. So, we are images of God's attributes in a rich and full way, in a narrow sense of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness as prophets, priests, and kings, but also in the wider sense of our, just of how we're made and the rationality we have, the spirituality we have. So that's the first thing images of God's attributes. Secondly, we are images for God's worship. We are now to take everything we are as man created in the image of God and we're to, we're to pour it all into this undiluted, this intentional worship of God, not just on the Lord's day, though that's pristine, though that's, that's the apex of it, but we're to do it with the totality of our lives. We're to represent God. We're to worship him in all that we do, in all that we think, in all that we say. We're to be exalting him. The reformers said we're to be living in corum dale—that that is, in the face of God, Always knowing God is present in the here and now. Robert Murray McShane once said, how would you pray differently if you knew that Jesus was standing right beside you when you prayed? And he said, well, he is, because he's omnipresent. He's always there. So we are to be worshipers in spirit and truth, pre-fall, but also post-fall, and forever and ever. That's part of what it means. We owe that to God, that we are created in the image of God. So, boys and girls, what that means for you is that your eyes don't belong to you. Your hands don't belong to you. Your soul doesn't belong to you. Well, one sense it does, because it's yours. But you are to dedicate it, consecrate it, give everything completely to God to worship him. Are you doing that, children? Are you living for God? Or adults? Are we really consciously, intentionally, day-by-day worshipers of God with the totality of our lives? Or do we say, well, we do that on Sunday. I get the other six days, God gets one. Or God gets half a one. No, no, no. You are made in the image of God. You owe everything to God. You have to give an account everyth- of everything, even your thoughts one day in on the day of judgment to God. We are to be worshipers in the totality of our being, joyful worshipers, humble worshipers of the living God. And third, we are images of God's reign, God's reign here on earth. You see, there's a close relation between man's creation in God's image and man's kingship over the world. You see that in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, cattle, etc. So the divine image in man is closely related to man's status, our status, as God's servant kings on earth. In the ancient world, kings often set up sculpted images of themselves to represent their authority. But God set up living images to represent His authority on earth. And it's, it's evident in all areas of society. Can you believe that God would take a sinful man and a sinful woman like you and me and say, I'm, I'm going to give you children and you're to represent me as you raise those children? You're to raise them the way I would raise them because you're my servant king and my servant queen on earth to raise these children that I'm loaning to you in the fear of God to live to his glory? Can you believe that as a pastor? God didn't send an angel to lead your congregation, but sent you as a sinful man to represent Jesus Christ, to do nothing but speak his word, to herald forth the word of God as inspired in the book of God, and to tell you that you are his servant king, to rule in the midst of the congregation with your fellow elders, to lead them as servant kings under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true of an employer over employees. It's true of a husband in his relationship to his wife. The whole of society is patterned around the theme of the image of God, and God allows us in various capacities to be his serving kings in that image. And that's how he runs the world. That's how it pleases him to do that, which is amazing. Amazing that God would use a sinner to do any of these things. Now, fourth, we are images for God's family. This image is relational, you see. I'm going to focus just on the family for a moment. The one God revealed himself in personal plurality when he said, let us make man in our image. So God made man to dimly reflect his own plurality of persons, his own eternal trinity through each person's complementary and interdependent relationships with other people. And those relationships begin with a nuclear family, our closest relationships. For God created man in his image, male and female, and verse 27 goes on to say, so be fruitful and multiply in the earth. And so thereby, we are called to fill the earth with a family of divine images, who by the grace of God, as sons and daughters of the king, would resemble his relational nature. So Genesis returns to the theme of God's image also in its first genealogy. You ever think about that? It parallels the statement that God created man in the likeness of God made he him with a declaration that Adam begat a son in his own likeness and after his image. So on the one hand, the text contrasts God's creating with Adam's begetting, lest we think that the image of God implies that we can share somehow in his deity. But on the other hand, the text compares God's making Adam in his image and Adam's begetting a son in his image. Adam was not a begotten son of God, but he was a created son of God. And through his race, the image of divine sonship was to be propagated. So the idea of sonship captures the ideas already pointed to in connection with the image of God. A son is like his father, and God made man as an image of his attributes. A son should honor his father, so God made man to worship him. A son shares in his father's authority and works to accomplish his father's will, and God created man to represent him as his servant king. A son has relationships with his father and the family, and God formed man to walk with him and his fellow men and women in love. You understand. This created image of God is pervasive for the totality of our lives. This is who we are. And in our day, all of this is thrown overboard and drowned in the ocean of humanism, denying the very existence of who man is and what man was meant to be. Now, this is all the fruit of the fall. That's my, my second major head. This will go quicker now. The continuing image of God. The fall of man brought devastating consequences. And here's what our forefathers said. When we fell, as tragic as it was, because we were created, we were created in such a way that we had There was room left to fall if we chose to fall, but we were created oriented to knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But we fell in Adam. Adam plunged the whole human race into devastating iniquity. And so now there are all kinds of problems in the world due to sin, and yet... Even though you would think, when you look around at what's going on in the world also today, you would think, wouldn't you, naturally, the image of God is totally destroyed. Well, what our forefathers said is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Yes, those have been utterly destroyed in man by nature through the fall. Knowledge has become ignorance. Righteousness has become unrighteousness. Holiness has become perversity. But those other things I mentioned, our rationality, our spirituality, our dominion, you see, we haven't totally lost those things. We are not animals. The Bible never says we're animals, even post-fall. We are not devils, even though by nature, unless we're born again, the devil may be our father. We may serve him more than the living God, but we are not devils. We are fallen sons and daughters of Adam who still have remnants in the wider sense of the image of God. We still have remnants of that image, though they're all damaged, they're all distorted, they're all marred by sin, but we still have the responsibility to live as image bearers of God despite all our sin and despite our fallenness. Now that's the way Paul puts it. He says, The carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So while we, in our original condition, were able to sin or also able not to sin, as Augustine taught, after the fall in our depraved condition, we are now unable not to sin by nature. And yet we are called to be image bearers of God. Still, that's why Genesis 9, 5, and 6 say, if you kill another person, if you kill another person, you're killing the image of God, and therefore you should be killed. In the image of God made he man. therefore, Genesis 9, 6, you have no right to take another person's life. There's a difference between a man and a beast. And so the continuing image of God, you see, is critical to understand. Despite the fact that sin has affected man's entire being, dominates our will, corrupts our mind, enslaves our affections, taints our actions. Despite the fact that we are utterly hopeless apart from the redeeming love of Christ, utterly lost, with no hope of being restored to righteousness except by the gracious intervention of God, we are responsible for we were created in the image of God. Continuing image. The third is the renewed image of God, the renewed image of God. This is, of course, through Jesus. Jesus is the supreme image of God. He became incarnate, to become the supreme image of God on earth, to be that supreme example and that substitute for fallen man, and to redeem us, to restore us back into the image of God in a greater fullness again, to restore in us by regeneration, righteousness True righteousness, true knowledge, true holiness, so that we wouldn't just have the remnants of that image in us, but that we would have the heart of that image restored back by the substitutionary and atoning ministry, intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a brother who was 19 years old. When I was 16, he came to me one day and he said this. He said, Joe, I figured out what life is all about, and I can put it in one word. And I said, well, what's that? One word? He goes, yeah, service. I said, I said what, do you, what do you mean? He said, well, God created us as his image bearers, as prophets, priests, and kings, and we were to live holy and solely for him. We were to serve God. We were to serve Our neighbor, Adam, was to serve Eve. We were to serve the creation to God's glory. And we fell from all that. But when we get regenerated and are brought back by Christ, into Christ, into union with Christ, we receive a heart back that loves to serve God. And we learn to have true knowledge and true righteousness and true holiness, and we get the image of God back. And when we get the image of God back, then we want to go out and serve God and our neighbor and our creation. And I remember saying to him, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Fifty-some years later, I think, that sounds very good to me. Think about it in your own life a moment. Isn't it true if you've been born again and you can live your life serving God, serving your wife, your husband, your family, your neighbor, serving the well-being of this creation, this society, does that give you satisfaction? Of course it does. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. What would you rather do? Serve your grandchild? Or your kids, or be served by them. Of course, God made you to be service-oriented, to be motivated by this divine image of knowledge and righteousness and holiness, so that you can be an example of that and can give it away, as it were, as much as you're able to others and to, to, to your family. You want to pass it on. You see, we get renewed in the image of God. It's not perfect here. We still sin. Simo justus et ekopor, at once justified, but still a sinner. We'll hear more about that this week. But the point is we get a reorientation in our life. By nature, we're walking with our backs to God. In regeneration, God calls us to halt to do an about-face, and conversion is a forward march, and now we're looking to him, and we're following him, and now the bent of our heart is to want to live as genuine image-bearers of God in this world. So now every area of my life is turned around. Now I'm an adopted son of God. I want to live like a son of God. I want to treat my children like God wants me to treat them, as if I always ask my children, this is the real question, isn't it? When you discipline your child, when you treat your child, you should be asking every day, how does God want me to treat my child? I want to be an image bearer of his fatherhood. I want to be an image bearer of the way Christ loves the church in my marriage. I want to love my wife that way. You see, as an employer, I want to treat my employees the way Christ would treat his employees if he was on earth and if he was the president of this company. Every area of life, when you're renewed, when you're born again, when you become a new creation, you get the image of God back in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. You want to grow in knowing God. You You want to be a prophet. You want to be a priest to pray for others and sacrifice your life for the welfare of others. You want to be a king to guide others in the way of salvation. The renewed image of God changes you changes your whole purpose of life. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The glory of the renewed image of God already shines in the spiritual transformation of the saints. And so you put off what is evil, don't you? You lie not to one another, as Paul puts it. Put off the old man. Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's the fruit of being born again. Let me say that again. It's very important. You put off the old with his deeds. You lie not one to another. You put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of God that created him. So you get the image back. My my, my 19-year-old brother was right, and now you love to serve. Your whole life is changed. Everything becomes different. You enjoy having loving communion, sweet communion in the bond of the Spirit of Christ with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the more you know them, the more you serve them, the more you serve one another, the communion of saints becomes a glorious thing. It becomes your extended family. But you also love to exercise now the kingship of Christ. You, 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 you love to take care of the domains entrusted to you in life in different capacities in, with a servant heart. You understand now in the inner man what Jesus meant when the image of God is restored in you that the one who rules is the one who serves. You love to serve. Service is at the heart of your life. Service gives you joy. Service reflects the image of your God in your king. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us, isn't it? Only he does everything. He takes a poor, rotten sinner like you and me. He reclaims us as his own. He restores us to our right-created order. He enables us through his substitutionary obedience, through his prophetical teaching, through his kingly guidance, to live in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He once again enables us to, to live correctly in the threefold relationship we have between us and God, us and our neighbor, us and the world. And he does this bit by bit, forming us, renewing that image in us. Not that we never sin, not that we never falter, not that we never grow weak, But he does it so that we are made more and more holy, so that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So in covenant, fall, and redemption, we became what we were not, and we are restored to what we were but in some sense even better than what we were because Christ has secured for us now a glorious image fashioned after his likeness that he will never take away. And we cannot lose it because he's our head and he's our king forever and ever. Praise be to God. Martin Luther put it this way, when the devil came to attack him, you know the story I, I trust. He said, Satan, you're at the wrong address. My king is in heaven. I'm I'm a a willing servant of him. If you want me, you have to get my king. And he's above your reach, Satan, and he's much mightier than you are, so you might as well be gone, Apollyon. You, you, You have nothing to do with me. I'm a Christian. I'm dedicated to my king. I'm restored in his image. Go elsewhere, Satan. You cannot have me. My king has already won me. And so you serve the Lord King forever. Endeavor in anticipation of the completed image of God in the great day, the completed image of God. Because when you ra- arise from the dead, your body is raised from the grave and your soul is reunited with your body. The Puritans used to say, All the sin clothes I've worn are abiding in the grave, and I arise in the white robe of His perfect righteousness. And I go to meet him, pure, as holy as holy can be, so that he sees no sin in his Jacob no transgression in his Israel, and I will be as holy as Christ himself is. I will have the image of God absolutely completed in me. I will be the perfect image. Yes, there's still only one begotten Son of God, but I will be a perfect adopted Son of God in glory to serve him there without sin forever and ever in absolute perfection. And what a, what a joy that will be Think about it. No more sin. No more sin. Heaven will be a perfect world of love. I will be completely restored into perfect resemblance of God, perfect image of God. What a future. John Owen the Puritan once said, if indwelling sin is not your greatest burden, as a believer. I doubt if you're even a Christian. But oh, one day to be done with that burden that I've sinned with my thoughts, I've sinned with my words, I've sinned with my action, I, I've, 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 I've painted graffiti even upon the renewed image of God. Oh, the pain of it that I would go against my Lord, that I would still sin against Him who has done everything for me. But one day, no more. Sin-free, sin-free. And perfect worship forever, constant worship of the triune God, gazing upon the face of Emmanuel, I will be restored fully into the completed image of God. So, therefore, the image of God spans history from creation to the fall to the recreation and regeneration and ultimately to the new creation of the heavens and the earth, and it sums up all the conditions of man. The image of God is tied with the entire view of anthropology from creation to everlasting glory. It's a doctrine that gives us hope in the midst of our world of despair. So let me close then with just some practical applications. I'm going to give them to you each in one word for you note-takers, and then uh, I'll explain it in two or three sentences and we'll move on. So this will be quick. Number one, sanctity, sanctity. The image of God teaches us that over all of human life, from the womb, from the moment of conception to senile old age, "...flies this glorious banner overhead, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man." Man is sacred. You are sacred because you have been made in the image of God. So to take away your life without just cause is to assault the glory of God sanctity flows out of the doctrine of the image of God. Number two, spirituality. Spirituality. Yes, we have bodies. Yes, we're made to worship God. But deep within us, you see, that worship should flow from our spirituality, which is the essential part of the image of God within us that we cannot explain. It's beyond us. We don't even understand fully who we are in our own spirituality. But every human being, as John Calvin well said, is by nature constitutionally religious. He may have very false views, but he knows there's a supreme being. He knows there's something above him. In a manner of speaking, you see, we are all priests, either to a true God or to a false God. And the very fact that we Relate to something that is bigger and better than us, be it true or false, shows our spirituality in the image of God in which we're created. Third word is rationality. Rationality, that we are a thinking, personal being, just like the God of Genesis 1, means we are created in His image, and we are called to think and reason and choose and speak and act always in the presence of the Lord. And therefore, we are to treat all those around us, not as objects, but as fellow thinkers and reasoners, people with intelligence and knowledge and rationality. And so we should respect one another in these areas of life and talk from heart to heart and converse with one another with respect, even when we disagree on things which leads me to word four, dignity, dignity. We may not treat people with contempt and curses, James three seventeen says. Peter says, honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, but honor all men, all men. The poorest peasant, Peter says, has the same basic warrant to receive honor as anyone else. Proverbs 14, 31, he that oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he that honors him has mercy on the poor. People are not commodities for us to use, but they are images by which we are with them and by them and through them to honor our God. Number five, integrity, integrity. Here I'm not only talking about moral integrity, but I'm talking about an integrated oneness of human nature in the totality of life. To be a whole human being is to be someone who has the image of God stamped upon him or her. And this world tries to drive wedges between our bodies and our our morality, our intellectual lives and our faith, our emotions and our obedience. And so we fragment our lives in all kinds of directions. But we must seek to understand and help people in the full complexity of their physical, mental, moral, vocational, and relational lives to see that their entire being is created in the image of God. And we must treat them as such, and we must live our entire lives with this kind of integrity that every part of us is part of that image and therefore must be dedicated to the service of God. Six, equality equality. Since the dignity of the divine image was lodged in our first parents, it belongs to both genders, to every ethnic group, to all classes within society. So the statements that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, these aren't merely political sentiments, but these are truths rooted deeply in the soil of the Scriptures. Racism, by the way, wrongly so-called, for there's only one human race, sexism, classism, all forms of prejudice are attacks against the image of God and therefore injure the honor of the living God who is the maker of all. So when we believe in the image of God, we must stand against bigotry and oppression and help the oppressed to learn their fundamental equality with all mankind. Seven, benevolence. The image of God is a potent motive to do good to all men. John Calvin writes of Hebrews 13, 16, The Lord commands all men without exception to do good to all men. Yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But here, this is still Calvin, scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves, but we are to look upon the image of God in all men. And to that we owe all honor and love. Do you love your arrogant supervisor, your rebellious child, your wicked neighbor, because you see that they're also made in the image of God? And do you do them good? Eight, authority. The right to agriculture and industry arises directly from the dominion of God's image bearers over the world. When human beings breed animals, care for them in controlled environments, put them to work in service to humanity, and kill them to harvest their bodies for food, for medicine, other products, man is not transgressing against the oneness of all life. He's exercising God's given authority over God's earth, as Genesis 1 and 9 say he's called to do. And furthermore, when one man exercises proper authority over others, it is not tyranny, but it's an office that bears God's image. Though we owe all men honor, we particularly owe honor and obedience to human authority, Romans 13, except when its demand for honor would displace God like Daniel and his friends in Daniel 3. Or it commands conflict, or its commands conflict with God's Word. Acts 5.29. Number nine, stewardship. The image of God is not God. Man rules as God's serving king, and therefore man is a royal steward of God's possessions. We are called to Therefore, approach these possessions with reverence, knowing we have to give an account to God for all. We're not called to be a destroyer of the earth, but we're to represent the Lord who is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. The ox should work for man, but the ox should also enjoy the fruit of its work, Deuteronomy 25 tells us. Therefore, a righteous man regards the life of his beast. So we show compassion, Show compassion even for the livestock of our enemies, Exodus 23 says. We have stewardship principles, you see, that are to guide us as image bearers to respect one another and to owe all stewardship to God, which will come back to us on the day of judgment. And number 10, morality. Morality, not just in terms of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Yes, there too. But in all of life, in all of life, the human conscience bears witness in all men that we cannot, Romans 2, 14, 15, we cannot escape God's sight or God's accountability. Humanistic attempts to deny absolute moral standards and replace them with an amoral or amoral utilitarian approach to life, not only fail to account for the reality of God, but also for the testimony of a man's own conscience. Whatever field of human endeavor we may go into, and you young people may go into, whether it's politics or medicine or business or or family, moral principles matter. You cannot escape biblical morality because you're created in the image, the moral image of God through the Spirit of Christ. And finally, number 11, destiny. Destiny. Created in God's image, we are all destined. We are all destined to appear before God on the day of judgment, either for eternal well or eternal woe. And this is part of our image. We are all responsible. All those who will go into heaven, if Jesus were to say to them all on his right hand on the great day, which of you deserve to enter into heaven, not a single hand would be raised. It's all by grace. And if Jesus were to turn to all those on the left hand on that day and say, which one of you don't deserve to go to hell, on that day, not a single hand will be raised because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But you see, then it will be too late to seek him. Here in this life, a recent study was done of Americans on whether or not they believe in hell. Do you know that 75% of Americans still believe in hell? That's amazing. And then the question was asked Do you believe there's any possibility God would send you there? 4%. See, everybody thinks their neighbor is the bad guy. They deserves to go to hell. God will not send me to hell. But my dear friend, if you and I are not reshaped in the image of God by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we will go to hell. God can only accept those into heaven who are absolutely pure in his sight. And the only way to be absolutely pure in his sight, since we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, is, as you well know, through the perfect passive and active obedience, the double obedience of Jesus, paying for our sins, obeying the law perfectly for us, imputed to us when we, by faith alone, trust in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone for our everlasting salvation. The destiny, the destiny of the image of God in us doesn't have three alternatives. Only two, heaven and hell. If you were to die today, which destiny would be yours? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee for the comprehensive doctrine of the image of God. We marvel at it, we marvel how it penetrates all four states of humanity. And we pray that we may be not only remade through regeneration, restored into thy image, but that we would exercise that image in such a way that we would truly live in Coram Deo, in the face of God, asking always, what does the Lord want me to do, to say, to think, or how to be? help us to walk in thy ways, help us to be God-fearers, and to yearn to live in accord with our restored image to the glory of our God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.